My name is James Sagers, and my friends call me Jim or Jimmy. And it's my pleasure to introduce this series to you, Understanding Catholicism. In today's lesson, we're going to cover four main points. Number one, we're going to talk about the Blessed Trinity. Number two, God's creation of angels and humans. Number three, the fall of Adam and Eve and the consequences. And then finally, the promised Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Well, please join me in saying the Jesus Prayer together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O my divine Savior, transform me into yourself. May my hands be the hands of Jesus. May my tongue be the tongue of Jesus. Grant that every faculty of my body may serve only to glorify you. Above all, transform my soul and all its powers, that my memory, my will, and my affections may be the memory, the will, and the affections of Jesus. I pray you to destroy in me all that is not you, and grant that I may live, but in you and for you, and that I may truly say with St. Paul, I live, no now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Well, today, we're going to show you how this wonderful love story begins, and we're going to start by discussing the Blessed Trinity. The mystery of the Most Holy Trinity is the central mystery of the Christian faith and life. It is the source of all the other mysteries of faith. So from all eternity, the Father begets the Divine Son, who is the perfect knowledge of himself. The perfect love that exists between the Father and the Son is the infinite divine person of love, the Holy Spirit. So the persons of the Blessed Trinity exists in perfect happiness and harmony. So while they are always distinct, they are also always one. In the Blessed Trinity, the communion of love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is one of absolute gift and total acceptance of that gift. The Blessed Trinity is the unending river of life of love and of holiness. The inner life of the Trinity reveals that God's existence is a divine family of endless love. Each person gives the totality of himself to the others. God in his goodness creates other creatures that are intelligent, namely humans and angels. And endowed with free will, the angels and humans are called to love like God, that is, to love with total self-giving. This need to love and to be loved is so deeply embedded in the very nature of intelligent creatures that the failure to love does violence to their very natures. Humans often confuse authentic love with feelings and attraction. But love actually resides in the will, not in the emotions. What we choose to do both expresses and defines our love. 
or the lack thereof. In our relationship with God, love is often expressed in obedience. Obedience is love in action. And therefore, St. Paul talks about faith working through love or the obedience of faith. So let's get into the definition of love a little more deeply. First of all, we have false love. It's kind of like fool's gold. It's built on emotions and feelings, attraction and sentiments. Genuine love, though, is based in the will, and it contains two essential qualities. Number one, it requires self-sacrifice, meaning I'm going to give myself to you. The second quality is commitment. That is, I'm going to be faithful to you when it's difficult. Perfect love contains those two same elements, but to the greatest degree. So it's now total self-sacrifice. I will give myself totally to you. An absolute commitment. I will be faithful to you no matter how difficult. This is the kind of love we're called to give to God, to our spouses, and to our children, and actually to each other. So one of the questions that comes up is why did God even bother to create? God simply chose to create out of the bubbling over of his superabundant goodness. He chose to offer his intelligent creatures the possibility of eternally sharing in his divine life of ecstatic love and blissful happiness. By a simple act of his will, God began a process that brought the entire universe and all living creatures into existence from nothingness. But a more important question that we sometimes ask ourselves is, well, why did God create you and me? Well, this is important. I mean, after all, the possibilities of God's free choices are endless. And therefore, he could have created countless other possibilities in our place. Men and women would have loved him far better than us. Here we are confronted with the mystery of God's love. When God considered all the other possibilities, we are the ones God loved and not those other possibilities. That's amazing. And the creation of the angels, as well as each human, it's always with God an individual choice, an individual act of his love. He not only created us out of love, but he created us for love in a relationship of intimacy that is beyond anything we could have imagined. In the book of Proverbs, God declared, I found delight in the human race. Wow. So the mystery is not only that God chose us individually, but that he did so knowing beforehand all the times we would betray his love, even to the point of choosing eternal damnation. Let's talk about the creation of the angels. The Hebrew word for angel means messenger or ambassador. In Greek, the word angelos means to bring tidings. So the angels are God's messengers. 
There are roughly 200 references about angels in the Bible. These wonderful pure spirits are unique creatures who are given the gift of free will so they would have the capacity to love. Jesus is the center of the angelic world. Angels belong to Jesus because they were created through and for him from the moment of Jesus' conception to his ascension to the Father. He was surrounded by the adoration and the service of angels. When God came into the world, the Father said, let all God's angels worship him, as we read in the book of Hebrews. The angel's song of praise at Jesus' birth is repeated at every Mass, or at least most Masses. Glory to God in the highest. The angels protected Jesus in his infancy. They served him in the desert. They strengthened him in his agony in Gethsemane. They proclaimed the good news of Jesus' birth and resurrection. And finally, the angels will be active at Christ's return to earth. They will serve God at the final judgment when they will deposit all humans on the shores of eternity. Three angels are actually named in the Bible. Gabriel, it means God is my warrior, announced the conception of John the Baptist to Zechariah and at the Annunciation, when informed the Blessed Mother Mary that she was chosen to become the Mother of God. Michael, which means, who is like God, led the good angels in their victorious battle against the evil angels, called demons or devils, and cast them into hell. And finally, Raphael, which means God heals. He was the younger Tobit's guide and mentor, he is the angel of healing. And God in his goodness gives us guardian angels. So God did not leave his beloved humans without the protection that we needed to fight against sin and Satan's deceptions. These protectors are our guardian angels. And Jesus said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven... The angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. The fallen angels are called devils. Lucifer, their leader, which means light bearer, wanted to use his free will to be like God rather than to love God. He drew many of the other angels toward him to serve him instead of God. In the heavenly battle that had ensued, between the good and bad angels, Lucifer and his angels were cast into hell. The sin of pride transformed this angel of light into Satan, the prince of darkness. Jesus told us that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And he has nothing to do with truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. In the book of Genesis, in chapters 1 and 2, God describes the creation of Adam and Eve. God created them on the sixth day in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And then God declared, behold, 
It was very good. So God blessed Adam and commanded him to be fruitful and multiply. And as God's representative, Adam was also charged to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, that is rule, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. The expression, in God's image and likeness, indicates family bond, a covenant that God made with Adam and through Adam with the entire human race. Humans are created as God's sons and daughters. So it is breathtaking to realize that God expresses his great love for all humans in the covenant, this marriage family bond that he established through Adam. In Adam, all humans were created with a destiny that looked to the ultimate goal of eternal rest in heaven. Adam was created on earth and from the earth, but he was made for heaven where he would abide eternally in God's everlasting love and glory and happiness. Adam was also created by God as a priest, king, and husband. In creating Adam, God is poetically depicted as the master potter, following him from the clay of the earth. So the Adam came from the Adamah, the dust of the earth. God placed Adam in a garden paradise to till and keep it. Now, these words literally mean work or serve and guard. At one level, the word work describes Adam's task of farming. But at a deeper level, they refer to Adam's duties as a priest. Adam's vocation was to serve as God's representative as a king and priest. His work refers primarily to worshiping God. As a guard, Adam was needed to protect Eve's soul and the souls of their future children. Eve, the biological mother of the human race, was also created by God, but here God is portrayed as a divine architect, forming Eve as his masterwork and forming her from a rib from Adam's side. Adam's words when he sees her, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, indicates their marital covenantal relationship. In the formation of Eve, God is instructing Adam how he is to relate to his future bride. Had God formed Eve from a bone from Adam's head, it might signify that she was superior to him. Conversely, had God formed Eve from a bone in Adam's foot, it might indicate that she was inferior to him. But in forming Eve from a rib close to Adam's heart, God was emphasizing that Adam was to love and protect Eve as his equal. In creating Eve, she had a unique dignity. Unlike Adam, who was formed from the dust of the ground, Eden was created from a living being who was already in God's image. Secondly, Eve's existence came 
at the last in an ascending order of creation. And finally, Eve's dignity and the nobility of all women finds its great expression in the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of the redeemed, those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. God gave Adam the commandment, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Literally, you shall die, die. Sin will bring both physical death and spiritual death into the world. The third chapter of Genesis opens ominously with a serpent seducing Eve into sin. The devil's temptation began by questioning God's word. Did God say, you shall not eat of any trees of the garden? After Eve clarified God's command, the devil suggested that God was a liar. You shall not die. Then the serpent falsely depicted the all-loving God as self-serving. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This was the critical point in the temptation. Because the devil was telling Eve that she should not trust God because his command was destined to protect his privileged position. Satan was saying, in effect, God never intends to give you the life and love that you crave. So if you want it, take it, seize it. Be rebellious, be like me, and make your own rules. At this juncture, Eve recognized that forbidden fruit was delicious food, which stirred her appetite. Secondly, it so delighted her eyes that she longed to possess it. And finally, it captured her pride with the deception that she would be wise in a divine sense, that she could be like God, making her own rules. After Eve's sin, she gave some to her husband, and he ate. Her priest, Adam, who was charged with defending her, was cowardly silent as Eve was seduced into sin. He was afraid to put his life on the line to protect her, having cowardly failed to defend his bride. Adam simply caved in and sinned. Eve was deceived, but Adam, St. Paul tells us, was not deceived. Tragically, the Hebrew text explicitly informs us that Adam was with her as Eve was tempted. Furthermore, every time the devil addressed Eve, he also addressed her in the plural, indicating Adam's presence. In contrast, Jesus, the new Adam, will make the total sacrifice of his life to save his bride from the clutches of spiritual death. Eve was formed from a place near Adam's heart. And so, the bride of Christ, the church, was formed 
from Jesus' side in the deep sleep of death, seen when the spear was thrust into Jesus' heart and then outflowed blood and water, symbolizing the two great sacraments of baptism and the Holy Eucharist. The consequences of Adam's original sin was terrible. They immediately died spiritually and brought physical death into the world. The relationship with each other was wounded. Lust entered their heart as they now viewed each other as a body to be selfishly used rather than a somebody to be loved and nurtured. This is why they quickly clothed themselves to protect their dignity. They also attempted to hide in fear from the loving God with whom they previously shared a loving intimacy. Oh, such are the consequences of sin. And then the blame game. Adam blamed Eve, the woman whom you gave me to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Eve blamed the devil. God held them all accountable. Nature will now rebel against man's rule. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you shall eat the plants of the field. Eve and countless daughters shall desire the heart of their husband, but many will endure a tyrant who will rule over them. The catastrophe of Adam's sin for the human race is terrible. In preferring himself to God, Adam not only lost original holiness for himself, but for all his progeny. St. Paul tells us, by one man's disobedience, many, that is all humans, were made sinners. This deprivation of original holiness means that humans were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Another result is the onset of what we call concupiscence. That is, the wound of original sin brings a diminished intellect, a weakened will, and especially disordered passions that incline humans to sin. Nevertheless, free will remained, so humans still have the ability to resist the inclination to sin. And thus, man's life becomes a spiritual battle fought within himself. St. Paul describes this battle of this internal concupiscence when he writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my innermost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And of course, he gives us the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam and Eve will live to see their children assaulted by the same three temptations that deceived Eve the threefold lust that St. John describes in his first letter, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus was victorious over these same temptations when after 40 days of fasting, he was tempted in the devil. And so the devil said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Lust of the flesh. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And on their hands they will bear you up. Thus you strike your foot against a stone. Pride of life. All these kingdoms of the world I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Lust of the eyes. At the very moment when Adam and Eve have rejected God and have fallen into sin, God gives them the promise of a Redeemer. This is called the Proto-Evangelium, that is, the first gospel. God mercifully promises a Redeemer who ultimately defeats Satan and restore the human race. And so God said to the serpent, Satan, I will place enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your seed, that is your offspring, and her seed, her son, and he shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the new Adam, who with the woman, Mary, the new Eve, will superabundantly amend the disobedience of Adam by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. For St. Paul tells us, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Eve's disobedience will be replaced by Mary's obedience. Eve brought death into the world, but Mary brings life, especially in the person of a divine son. Adam and Eve are driven out of the Garden of Eden. Death will come into the world, spiritual death and physical death. The rest of the Bible narrates this great struggle of mankind's long and difficult journey back to paradise where humans can once again feast on the tree of life. It is a tragic story of mankind's continual rejection of God's love. And nevertheless, God never abandons the ungrateful creatures he loved so dearly. God's love and mercy highlights the whole rest of this amazing story that we call the Bible. Because you see, no one loves the way God loves. But God shows his love for us in that when we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. Paul writes to the Romans. Wow. St. Paul instructs us that Adam was not deceived by the temptation that overcame Eve. Why then did he sin? I believe that Adam recognized that his unwillingness to put his life on the line to protect Eve contributed to his fall. Having lost the woman he loved, 
to sin, but he didn't love enough, Adam just caved in. Having committed one act of cowardice, he committed another by caving into sin. As a result, I believe this teaches that men in particular are wounded in the area of self-sacrificing love. This was predicted when God said to Eve, Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. How many countless women since Eve have longed for their husband's heart, but suffered a tyrant instead? We see the result of this today in our own country, where so many fathers have abandoned the mothers of their children and even their offspring. St. Paul gives all men an important lesson. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Let's say the, the Our Father together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.